Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is going on? What is happening? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's continuing to stay sane, healthy, active, whatever it may be, just to kind of get you not only through this day, also during this time, of course, as it seems the coronavirus pandemic is still moving strong here, especially in the Northeast, but sooner than later, hopefully, it'll start to dwindle down and we can get back to a little bit of normalcy. And until then, I will continue to entertain and inform you here as I deliver the latest edition of the J Reels podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 123 episodes, I welcome you guys back here with a special podcast for today, Friday, April the 10th in the year of our Lord 2020. Good Friday for those who are out there celebrating as Easter is just a couple days away. And I understand it may be a little bit difficult to celebrate during this time, but uh, whatever you're doing, whether you're home alone, or with your spouse, family, friends, significant other, whomever that may be, I hope you continue to stay safe, enjoy it as much as you can, and of course, be grateful and thankful that despite whatever it is that's going on, that we are alive and kicking, and as long as we're doing that, we're off to a good start. The reason for this podcast today is because I want to take a trip down memory lane to some of the greatest victories that I've watched personally between my five beloved teams and I understand there may not be a lot of championships to discuss. And not only just the championships, even some of the great victories, but more importantly, the titles that were won, whether it was by the Georgetown Hoys of college basketball, the New York Islanders of hockey, the Boston Celtics of basketball, the Pittsburgh Steelers of football, and the New York Mets in baseball. And I'll go in that order because that's pretty much the order from my, and I love all my teams, but from... Georgetown all the way up to the Mets. As we all know, baseball is my first love. And I get that people may listen to this and say, well, why do we care what Jay Reels thinks about his team's winning championships? Well, it's twofold. One is during this trying time to kind of take a step back and regroup as a sports fan my whole life to kind of look at it from 30,000 feet as to all my teams and where I was and what was going on because just as important as these teams in our lives, taking it from that scope wanting to do this type of podcast where you could kind of celebrate the achievements of the teams in the past and what we were doing at that time makes it that much more symbolic, number one. And number two, by taking this trip down memory lane, whether you're not a fan of the Hoyas, Celtics, Islanders, Steelers, or Mets, it could unpack some of the great memories that you've experienced being a sports fan. So even though you may not be a Met fan, you may be a Yankee fan, or if you're not a Steeler fan, you may be a Giant fan or a Cowboy fan. If you're not an Islander fan, you may be a Ranger fan, which you only had one Stanley Cup in the last 70 some odd years, but still, at least you could go back to 1994 and relive that. That's the reason for this podcast, and I get that obviously it's from my perspective, but it's not even just chronicling what took place for these teams to win these titles, but more so where were you, at what age, the time in your life, et cetera, et cetera, how these championships and these victories meant to you as a sports fan. And that's pretty much what this is. So without further ado, I'm going to start with Georgetown. And when I do this, I'm going to explain how I became a fan of these teams because for somebody that's lived in New York pretty much my entire life, you would think that all of my sports teams would be New York-centric. And growing up in the Bronx, I understand that this is the anomaly of all time because growing up in this borough and living in this borough, that you would think I'd be a diehard Yankee fan. That's not the case. But with me being a New Yorker, I only root for two New York sports teams, as a lot of people may or may not know. 
So as I go through all of my teams and explain as to how I became a fan of these teams and what these teams meant to me as a boy, as a young adult, etc., I'll certainly get into that before I talk about these great victories. So to start off with Georgetown, I became a Georgetown fan and understandably so the night that the Hoyas were in the championship game back in 1982 versus North Carolina. Now, mind you, I just turned 13 years old. Now, I loved basketball before that, but considering living in the Northeast, there isn't many, or at least at that time, there weren't many college basketball teams you could wrap your arms around. And with me, although St. John's in the years after that became a big thing here in New York, but I certainly did not look at St. John's or even Syracuse here in the New York State, if you want to look at that. And certainly said, well, I'm going to choose this team. Now, mind you, I did not go to college, so it's not as if I went to Georgetown either. But the Hoyas were the first team on the radar that I certainly looked at. And of course, the freshman that was Patrick Ewing at the time, who was one of the dominant college players of all time. And of course, in that game against North Carolina, we all know who the opponent was in a one Michael Jordan, James Worthy, Sam Perkins, etc., coached by Dean Smith. And of course, with Georgetown, coached by John Thompson. As I'm watching this game unfold, it was tooth and nail. We get that all the early goal tens by Patrick Ewing to pretty much start off the first, seemed like six minutes of the game. He had about five or six goal tens. And we all know what happened after that. The jumper by Jordan, which pretty much started this legend, and they lose the game 63-62. Freddie Brown throws the pass to the other team to North Carolina, and away we go. But then people are probably wondering, well, Jay Reels, why are you talking about this? It's supposed to be about victories, not losses, right? It's about victories. But this is the dawning of a Georgetown Hoya sports fan that I am to this day. And it started that night. And of course, two years later, as the dominance continued to move along, where the Hoyas won in Seattle, Final Four against Houston, winning a national title. And at that time, I was 15 years old. So I'm young and I'm thinking, ah, they're going to go back. And with the dominance of Georgetown and the players that they had on the team at that time, Reggie Williams... Michael Graham, who I know a lot of people couldn't stand with his bald head and he was just brash and as had as much swag as anybody in college basketball at that time. And of course, the Hoyers were to be hated too, considering that they had the giant high top sneakers. They had the navy blue, but it almost looked like it was black when they wore that. So they certainly played the villain more so than they played the team with the white hat. And they were a team that obviously everybody hated. And then the next year, of course, was 85 of Villanova, which we'll get to that some other time because you know the other podcast is coming as far as the bad losses are concerned. But we're not going to touch on that. We're going to touch on the positivity. We're going to touch on the champion aspect of all these teams that I root for. And after that, there was not another title to be found because Georgetown, for quite some time, even with the players that they brought in over the years, whether your name is Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, Allen Iverson, Othella Harrington, Greg Monroe, Roy Hibbert, and to me, Roy Hibbert, that team was the last team that you could root for, whether it was him, Jeff Green, and Jonathan Wallace when they beat North Carolina. Now, it wasn't in a final, but it was in a regional final where they got their revenge, so to speak, many years later against a Carolina team that had Tyler Hansborough, Wayne Ellington, Brandon Knight, just to name a few, and they were an underdog going into that game. And I was actually at the Meadowlands at the regional final, And Georgetown, Jonathan Wallace, I'll never forget, he hit a big three there to pretty much put them ahead, and they went away away with the game. And I'm thinking, wow, this team made it to a Final Four that nobody even predicted, and they've had such terrible 
luck and just had played terrible in the tournament prior to that and even after that. And again, we're not going to get into the losses. So the Final Four, we know they made it against Ohio State. They lost to a Greg Oden team. And that was pretty much it for Georgetown when it comes to the tournament because they have not done anything since then. But to me, when I look at the 84 championship, and I was young, you know, did I follow them the way I follow sports now? Of course, Georgetown, as big as they were in the mid-80s, I certainly followed them and rooted for them. But when you're 15, you're certainly not going to be totally invested the way you are as an adult or even as you get older when you totally put all your heart and soul and emotionally invest in these teams that at the time when you're 15, you're thinking, ah, you know, they're just going to keep winning. They're going to go back. And they did, but obviously were unable to get that second championship. And since then, the only saving grace that they had was that 2007 run when they made it to a Final Four. I understand, big whoop, they still didn't win a championship, but I'll never forget that was a day where it totally surprised me because I didn't think that they were going to even make it to a regional final, let alone get to the Final Four, which they did. And sadly, they lost that game against Ohio State, which they were tied in the second half. It was a low-scoring game. They were tied in the second half at 44 up. I'll never forget it. And then, of course, the wheels fell apart. And then Ohio State pulled away again. That was Greg Oden and uh, Michael Conley, who was on the Memphis Grizzlies for many years before becoming a Utah Jazz this past offseason. And that happened to fall on my birthday. So here we go, back to the losses, which we know there's going to be a lot more heartache than there is ecstasy. But at the same time, uh, at least for that run, that was the last team that I could certainly look at and say, hey, they actually gave me a little bit of a thrill they went to a Final Four under John Thompson III. And since then, it's just, it's been poof. That's all it's been. Just a lot of dust, a lot of rubble, and nothing much to cheer about. But as I move along now to the New York Islanders, that was a team that in the early 80s, they were dominant. They won four straight Stanley Cups on the verge of a fifth. I started rooting for them in the early 80s only because my cousin Josh who was a diehard Ranger fan. And of course, the Islanders and Rangers were a heated rivalry back then. In the midst of that, I certainly wanted to be the contrarian to my cousin Josh. So of course, I rooted for the Islanders and they were on this epic run to the point where they won five straight, or they won five straight conferences, but four straight Stanley Cups. And in the process, just like I said a minute ago, as far as Georgetown, you felt with the players that they had there, they already had won several Stanley Cups in a row. Others are going to go on forever. And of course, as you become an adult and you look at the sports landscape and realize that these windows to have this type of dominance, and we understand that was a different world. That drive for five was 36 years ago. So this was before free agency, player movement, things of that nature where in this day and age, it's very hard to have a team where you're going to have a bunch of superstars play for a certain amount of period where you know that they could be there could be some dominance for a two, three, four, five year run. I understand Golden State is the latest of that prior to this year as they went to five straight NBA finals and they won three and they should have won four, let's face it. But we rarely see that in sports. And back then as a kid you're thinking, oh, this is gravy. This is pretty much a birthright knowing that this team has gone to several Stanley Cups. And how I look at that was as a 14-year-old in 83 when they won their fourth straight cup and they beat the Edmonton Oilers. You're looking ahead as 
a drive for five, which was the moniker going into the 83-84 season as the cry to try to match the Montreal Canadiens who are the New York Yankees of hockey as they won five straight cups in the late 50s and they also won four cups there in the late 70s. So to think you had from 76 to 79, the Canadians winning their four cups and then the Islanders carbon copied that with four cups of their own from 80 to 83. So now this drive for five in 84. They beat the Rangers in that crazy first round where they were down two games to one and they came back in a game four in the Garden and won and then the overtime game against the Rangers, which was just an unbelievable game, classic. I understand it probably to this day, the Ranger fans still cringes at that despite the fact that they swept the Islanders in 94 on the way to their first cup in 54 years. But then the Islanders... Continue to move on in the postseason. They beat the Capitals and then they beat the Canadians when they were down 2-0 to a goaltender named Steve Penny where a lot of people thought that he was going to be the next coming of Ken Dryden and that uh, star fizzled out very quickly because then the Islanders won four straight to go to a cup final and then they lose to an Edmonton Oilers team that they fall one short. But the one saving grace in all that is that in the process, the Islanders have set the North American record for the most playoff series one in a row. The Celtics didn't do that. The Yankees haven't done that. The Islanders certainly have, whereas they won 19 straight playoff series. Obviously, the four straight Stanley Cups, the four rounds of 16, and then the three rounds leading up to the Stanley Cup final, which they lost four games to one. And since then, there hasn't been much to cheer about with the Islanders as well. The closest I could say since then was in 93 when they made it to a conference final. But the good thing is, is that in a game seven against the Pittsburgh Penguins, where the Penguins are going for a three-peat, this is in the 92-93 season. And I'll never forget this. I was living with my cousin at the time, spring of 93. And I was actually out and I was trying to run home to watch this game. And I actually got home. And as the game was unfolding, I went into overtime And David Volick scored the overtime goal to the point where I went so ballistic, I actually ran out of the apartment onto the street and screamed like a maniac. And that's how big it was. And the Islander team then, if you remember, they lost their best player at the time in this previous series to the Capitals and Dale Hunter with one of the biggest cheap shots of all time where he separated his shoulder. And even though Turgeon tried to be heroic in coming back, but he certainly was far from the player that he was at that time. And then the Islanders went to play the Canadians and they pretty much had nothing left in the tank. They lost in four games. Oh, excuse me. They lost in five games. And the Canadians, they went on to play the Kings. And that was the last time that the Canadians won a cup considering their rich tradition and history. It's been 20, what now, 27 years between Stanley Cups for that organization, which when you think about it, it's, it's almost like the Yankees not winning a World Series in 27 years. To put that in perspective. So... Since then, the Islanders have had pretty much no luck, no success. Yeah, they made it to the playoffs, but to me, that was the last time that I could really certainly cheer for my team, considering that they beat the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions, and then, unfortunately, they did lose. I get it. No more victories, people. But at the same time, these are just moments that I look back as far as just celebrating victories and really unexpected victories. Because when you're dominant and when you're on top of the sports world like they were from 1980 to 83, you feel like it's an automatic that they're going to win these games. And then as they went through that tough stretch there in the 80s, or excuse me, in the late 80s into early 90s, 
you're thinking, wait a second, can this team rekindle any type of magic that they did from the past? And we get that they had a zillion Hall of Famers on that team. Mike Bossy, Dennis Potvin, Billy Smith, Clark Gillies. Uh, you go down the list. Brian Trottier. And it's a thing where you know that those guys aren't going to walk into the door or prototypes of those players. So you have to just hope and pray that your team gets on one of those magic carpet rides, as I like to say, and hopefully get to the top of the mountain as far as winning a championship is concerned. And unfortunately, in this case, they didn't do that. But again, knowing that they upset a huge team along the way or in the process certainly makes me think back on just some of the good times of that organization, some of the good times that when I rooted for these teams, despite the fact that they didn't win the whole thing, but it certainly brings back some great memories. As far as the Celtics are concerned, I got a couple of funny stories about this. And the Celtics, similar to the Hoyas and even the Islanders to a certain extent. Now, I became a Celtic fan in the late 70s because of my cousin JD, who, of course, I've mentioned several times on this podcast and actually has been a guest on this podcast a couple times. One of the first games I went to was in 74 when the Knicks played the Hawks. But then later on, as I was, what is it, 10 years old at the time, I, you know, as a matter of fact, I was nine where John Havlicek was going through a retirement ceremony. It was his final year in the NBA, and we actually missed that, but we got to see the Celtics. My cousin, J.D., who loves the Celtics, and from that day on, that's when I grew attached to them. Then the following year, they drafted Larry Bird, and off they go. So in the mid-'80s, those Celtic teams, I certainly were just fascinated by. They had the best player in the league who won three straight MVPs, I kind of felt as if this is going to be a year-in, year-out deal where we're just going to go to the championship all the time. And that was the early success that I had as a teenager rooting for those three teams in particular. So when I look at 81, and I'll never forget that day where the Celtics played the Sixers in the Eastern Conference Final, Game 7. They were down three games to one. They came back and they won a Game 7 in the Boston Garden. And I actually had a Little League game that day. And I knew in the back of my mind, I said, I had to get home to watch the end of this game. And I actually got home on my old black and white, which is crazy, with the rabbit ear antennas. And I turned it on, and Bird hits the bank shot. And I know Philly fell apart down the stretch. And the Celtics went on to play the Rockets, and they beat them. Tiny Archibald, Cedric Maxwell, of course, Larry Bird, Robert Paris, etc. And they won their first title on the Bird and their first title since 76. Now, I was too young to know about the Garfield Herd. Remember that game, Phoenix, the triple overtime game in Boston Garden? I didn't watch the Celtics then. I certainly was into basketball, but it wasn't until the late 70s that I certainly got into basketball. And, of course, the Celtics were my team. Then we could look at 84, them beating the Lakers in that classic series, that great game seven, even the great game four when they lost 137-104 in game three, and I thought there was no chance they are going to win. Then, of course, we know about 85, but then 86 was the year where we were hoping that we'd face the Lakers because a lot of people think, despite the fact that the Bulls were 72-10 and 10 and arguably could be the number one team of all time as far as the history of the league is concerned, but a lot of people do look at that 86 Celtic team. They were 40-1 and one at home. Their only loss was to the Portland Trailblazers, and they lost bad, too. I think it was 117-101. It was on a Friday night. I'll never forget it. But the Celtics, they certainly ran through the league that year and beat the Rockets. In six games behind Larry Bird, who just finished his three-peat of being an MVP and, of course, back-to-back finals MVPs for him in 84 and 86. 
And then, of course, they draft Len Bias, and we know what happens there. That's a, the, one of the biggest losses the franchise have ever had. And then since then, unfortunately, there were a lot of misses until 2008. Now, I can look at 2002 with the Celtics when they played the Nets in an Eastern Conference Final and to think that they could have gone up against the Lakers, but that was an improbable run. But I certainly didn't look at that and say, I don't like the Islanders did when they beat the Penguins. To me, as great as that ride was, but it wasn't as memorable because of who we beat along the way. I mean, we beat a Sixer team, we beat a Piston team who was on the come up at that time, but certainly weren't the Piston teams of the mid-2000s. And then, of course, we lost to the Nets who went to -to back-to-back NBA Finals. But as magical, especially that Game 3 in the Eastern Conference Final when they were down 26 points in the second half and they came back and won, and they were up two games to one, you're thinking, oh, geez, they could go to the Finals, but... You look at that Memorial Day Monday where Pierce missed those big free throws at the end of the game, which were killer because if the Celtics would have won that, they definitely would have gone to the NBA Finals and I could be speaking a different tune as of right now. But that doesn't really get me going as far as when I think back and look at, wow, that was some run, that was great, you know, we made it to a final. Yeah, listen, we got to a conference final, which was unexpected, but fell short. But 2008 was the year of the big three with KG, Ray Allen, of course, Kevin Garnett, and Paul Pierce. So the one thing I think about, and this is going to sound crazy. That was a year where everything clicked. They were 66 and 16. They barely got out of the first round to the Atlanta Hawks. Remember the Hawks took them to seven games, although they blew them out in game seven, but I was nervous because I didn't know if they would be tight. I didn't know if they were, Atlanta was playing with house money. And sure enough, the Celtics prevailed then. Then the second round, of course, the series against the Cavaliers, where LeBron matched up against Pierce in that classic Game 7, where LeBron scored 45 and Pierce scored 41. Then you looked at the Piston series, where I was actually the back end of that series. I was on a cruise. And I'll never forget, I had to watch these games from the cruise. And the Celtics were in trouble, too. They were down two. No, they were actually, they were 1-1. They won Game 2 in Boston. Detroit did. And then the Celtics... Pulled out a Game 3 miracle because I thought they were going to lose the two games in Detroit. Because remember, they had lost every game on the road leading up to that point. So they won a Game 3. And then, of course, they lose Game 4. They win 5. And then they won Game 6 in Detroit to the tune, I'll never forget, in the locker room, seeing Paul Pierce, who was from Inglewood, California, grew up a Laker fan, and he's leading the chant of beat LA. And I was, let's start the finals right now. Let's go. And then we know what happened in the finals. But the one interesting story I have there... And this is the, one of the worst things I could have done as a sports fan. And this is a giant confession. So I'm watching game four. Celtics show up two games to one. The Lakers are putting it on the Celtics big time. And the only thing I could think of at one point, I think it was in the second quarter, they were down 45-21. And like an idiot. Now, mind you, I can see if Boston was down 2-1 or this was a deciding game where the Lakers could have gone on to win a championship. Here I am, down 24, and I had to shut the TV off. I was just annoyed, aggravated. I said to myself, now the Lakers are going to win this game, and you know what's going to happen? They're going to go win a game five, and then they have to go back to Boston and try to win two games against an upstart Laker team, et cetera, et cetera. And this is what was going on in my head. I didn't want to see it, and I can't stand the Lakers. So then I shut it off, so then what do I do? Of course, I'm a masochist, so I have to keep my eyes or be in tune with what's going on, even if I'm not watching. So I go to my phone, I'm looking at scores, and Lakers are still 
had the game in hand. But then there was a point, I believe it was late in the third quarter, and I saw the score, and I almost dropped the phone. Because at that point, the Lakers were up 71-67. So I said, wait a second. So I went back, turned on the TV, followed the game at that point, and the Celtics pulled it out late. I'll never forget Ray Allen at the top of the key against Sasha Vujicic, and he just broke him down, lay up to the basket, which iced the game. Eddie House was huge in that game. And I said to myself, that will be the last time I'll ever show off the TV while watching a game. And mind you, I've never done that in my life. In any of the teams that I root for, in any of the games, whether it's a regular season game, playoff game, championship game, I have never showed off the TV. What possessed me to do so this time around? I don't know. Idiocy. So here I am relishing this victory, but at the same time hating myself because why did I show up to TV to miss the guts of the game where they came back and this is the thrill of being a sports fan to watch that, to go through that, to experience that, to say I stuck by him through thick and thin. And it almost felt as if I didn't even deserve to be a Celtic fan at that point because I'm like, what am I doing? And then, of course, they win game, or they lose game five. They're up 3-1. They lose game five. And then game six was the coronation where they blew out the Lakers by 39. It was a celebration unlike any other. Tears in my eyes. And seeing Kevin Gargan, to this day, I'll, I'll, it's indelible. Just seeing him at midcourt, Michelle Tafoya, anything is possible, screaming at the top of his lungs and crying. Uh, it was just unbelievable. And since then, of course, the Celtics have lost a tough game seven, as I talked about in the last podcast. Kobe's final NBA Finals game. And that was a tough one to swallow. I'm not going to get into that right now. We'll get into that, of course, another time. But uh, Celtics, we'll see. They were inches close from making it to an NBA Final two years ago. But they lose to LeBron there in a the Game 7 at home, if you recall. And that's what I have there for the Celtics. But great memories, obviously, in the 80s. And the 2018, what can you say? That was 22 years between championships. And we talked about before with the Canadians. They're now 27 years. And the Celtics are the Yankees of the NBA in that regard. Now, I understand the Lakers are creeping up. But remember, those first five, I believe the first five championships that the Lakers won were in Minneapolis. So, yes, do they count with the Lakers at 16? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, they've only won 11 and only 11 in Los Angeles. Just keep that in mind. As far as the Steelers are concerned, growing up in the Bronx, you never rooted for the Jets or the Giants because they were terrible in the 70s. There were only two teams you could root for. They were the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Dallas Cowboys. I chose the Steelers. Now, mind you, the first football game that I could truly remember was Super Bowl XI between the Raiders and the Vikings. And that was a Raider victory where, remember, they had suffered so much in the 70s, losing all these brutal playoff games to the Steelers. They lost Super Bowls to the Packers and also championship games, you name it. Super Bowl Eleven was the first recollection of football that I have in my memory. And then since I had rooted for the Steelers, playing football in the street or in the schoolyard, wanted to be Lynn Swan or Terry Bradshaw, I always like to play quarterback. I always like to throw the ball around. And then it wasn't until the 78 season when they were 14-2. and two, They played the Cowboys in the Super Bowl, which at the time, to me, was the best Super Bowl ever. They won 35-31. All Hall of Famers abound on both teams. And then the following year, they win against the Los Angeles Rams in Pasadena, where they were trailing in the fourth quarter in 1917. And funny how these stories, and I guess 
when you're a young kid, of course, you're going to gravitate to the teams that win a lot. And you're thinking, Steelers are going to win. They're going to keep on winning. It's going to be championship after championship. And when you look at that early 80s window for me, I tell you, it is uh, my coverage been runneth over with championships. But then after 1980, and especially after 83 when Bradshaw had to retire due to his elbow, it was a long time between Super Bowls, that's for sure. And we won't get through the suffering. We'll talk about that some other time. And with the Steelers, I've suffered a lot. But the 2005 season, when they were 7-5 and five and they won those final four games to make it 11-5 and five to go to the postseason as a sixth seed. Now, mind you, although they were a sixth seed in the standings, as far as the playoffs are concerned, but they certainly weren't a sixth seed when it comes to the type of team they were. Because remember, they were a veteran team, despite Ben Roethlisberger being a quarterback for the second year in his career. But you had guys like Heinz Ward, Jerome Bettis, even though Troy Polamalu, that was his actually third year in the league. But you had Joey Porter, who was a mainstay on defense. James Farrier was a longtime veteran of the league, starting off with the Jets. So there was a lot of veteran leadership on that team. And they beat the Bengals in the first round. All right, great. They're the Bengals. Then they go to Indianapolis to play a Colt team that was the one seed in the AFC. And a lot of people thought there's no way that Pittsburgh's going to beat them. Even Joey Porter came out with some comments saying that, not to say the guarantee to win, but he said, we're going to go in there and I we're going in there to win the game. Didn't pull a Joe Namath a la Super Bowl three, but at the same time, he certainly put his stamp on that game, knowing that they were going to come out of Indianapolis with a victory. And a little bold on his part, but that was Joey Porter. But he certainly backed it up. He had a great game that day. And it was just a topsy-turvy type of game where Pittsburgh jumped out to a 14-0 lead. They actually held on late to the point where they had the ball deep in Colt territory. And we all know about the fumble there. Jerome Bettis, ball pops up. Gary Brackett hits him. And then Nick Harper, who's running toward the other side of the field. And Ben Roethlisberger with the immaculate redemption, as they call it, with that tackle. And then minutes later, Mike Vanderjat, who was a very good kicker at the time for the Colts, misses wide, wide, wide right. And then Pittsburgh goes on to Denver. And Denver was the two-seed in the AFC that year. And they go on and blast them. They win 34-17. And what made this run wonderful was, surprisingly, from the first playoff game on, my father came down to visit where I used to watch in this bar in Blondies in Manhattan. It's a huge Steeler bar. So I went down there, and right before kickoff of the game against the Bengals, he shows up, we watch the game, they win. I said, Dad, you got to come back next week. You got to watch the Colts. Comes back the following week. Steelers upset the Colts. Dad, you got to come back the next week. Denver. Comes back. Beat the Broncos. Dad, Super Bowl. No matter who we play, whether it's going to be Carolina or Seattle, ended up being Seattle. And that was one, sadly, although I rejoiced it, tears in my eyes at the end because it had been 26 years between Super Bowl champions, and now that I'm a young adult, at this point, not even more than a young adult, this was doing the math. So now I'm 36, about to be 37 that year. So now I got to taste the title as an adult because all of my victories have come when I was either a boy or a teenager. So now I'm basking in this, but it was so anticlimactic because if you remember that Super Bowl, the Steelers really won that game on three plays. 
Ben Roethlisberger was a third and 20, I believe it was, with that long pass where he threw to Heinz Ward where he caught it at the goal line pretty much and then Ben snuck it in, which was dubious at best. That was play number one. Play number two was the Willie Parker 75-yard touchdown run, which is still a Super Bowl record to this day. And then the third play was the end-around flea flicker where Antoine Randall finds Heinz Ward in the end zone, and that was it. Because Roethlisberger was 9 for 23 for 120 yards and two interceptions, and one of those interceptions was at the goal line. He was awful. And I'm sure there were pregame jitters, in-game jitters, post-game jitters for him. But thankfully, he gets off the hook, considering that his defense bailed him out. And we get that there were some questionable calls in the game, in particular that holding call on, I believe it was Clark Hagens, the defensive. No, he wasn't defensive end. He was actually an outside linebacker. And they brought that back. It was a touchdown, which would have made the game 17-14 Seattle. But what happened there is that they got called for a hold. They get pushed back. And then Hasselbeck throws an interception to Ike Taylor. And that pretty much iced the game for Pittsburgh. And then you fast forward just a couple of years after that, where to me, if watching Super Bowl Forty was anticlimactic, this is where... I got to exalt to the sports heavens. Because that run in 2008 where the Steelers had a bye when they played San Diego at the time, the San Diego Chargers, where they beat them in the divisional round and then they beat the Ravens in that championship game, 23-14. And let me tell you something. If you watch that game today, that was an old school bloodbath. That, that, that's what I used to call, and I understand it's not PC to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's, it's, I'm talking about it from a sports perspective, okay, people? But that was a body bag game. That game, there was hits all over that field. And that was what Steelers-Ravens matchups were like. They were literal bloodbaths. It was a 15-round heavyweight fight. And that game was punctuated by the interception Troy Palomalu, as he took it back down 16-14, and I had Ajita watching that game because that game felt like it took 40 hours to watch. And I can't stand the Ravens with every fiber of my being. So they win there. They go on to the Super Bowl again, and they play the Arizona Cardinals. We all know the crazy plays in that game, whether it was the James Harrison 100-yard touchdown, interception return at the half. They took a 21-7 lead. We understand, or 20-7 lead, excuse me. And then the Cardinals come back in the fourth quarter with two touchdowns, including the touchdown that Larry Fitzgerald ran 60-some-odd yards up the seam. But that night of Super Bowl 43, I was at a party, and people were in my face saying, oh, this is it, they're going to lose, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And I pointed at the clock on the screen. There was two minutes and 43 seconds to go with two timeouts and a two-minute warning. And believe it or not, Maybe the old cynical me or because the Steelers were in the middle of this run where they won a Super Bowl a few years before that and that they have more of a veteran leadership now, especially with Ben Roethlisberger being entrenched as the quarterback of this team. I had no worry in the world. I really felt confident and I was probably one of the few times in my life as a sports fan that I felt confident that he was going to march them down the field to at least tie the game. Because remember, it was 23-20. So the Steelers could have at least set up shop to kick a chip shot field goal. But I thought to myself, uh-uh, let's win this game. Let's not fool around with that much time left on the clock and with the timeouts and the warning. There's no way and no excuse that they cannot try to march down the field to punch it in the end zone. And then we know what happens. 
to me, the San Antonio catch, I'll call it to the day I die, is the gift that keeps on giving. Because I can watch that 7,000 times and I still don't know how Ben, A, threw that ball in that window and then B, San Antonio Holmes. And he's not Randy Moss. He's not Megatron Calvin Johnson where he's 6'3", 6'4", 6'5". San Antonio was 5'11". And for him to stretch the way he did and to keep his toes inbounds, and I understand that could be questionable as well, but it doesn't even get any better than that. When he caught that ball and you hear Al Michaels say touchdown, I just couldn't believe it. I said, no, I got to see a replay. That was the first thing I said before I even celebrated. I said, let me see the replay first and then I'll determine whether or not this game is over. Sure enough, his feet, I thought his feet were in bounds. I said, if they overturned us, they're going to be nuts. They didn't. Steelers win. And I tell you, that one made up for Super Bowl Forty. And people could say, Jay Reels, what are you talking about? How could that make up for Super Bowl Forty? Well, again, that game, if you watch, and I'm sure you could probably see it on NFL Network, these Super Bowl classics or the Super Bowl reruns, you watch that game, that game will put you to sleep. And this game was the quite opposite. So that's the Steelers there. And of course, since then, they did make it to a Super Bowl two years after that. And although they played in a championship game a few years ago against the Patriots, but they certainly haven't come anywhere near close to a Super Bowl since then. But those two moments, Super Bowl 40 and even more so 43, were certainly some of the best moments in my sports life. And then a wrap up here with the Mets. Now, this goes without saying. Growing up in the Bronx, my great-grandfather was a New York Giant fan. And because of that, I became a Met fan through him. Because if you are from this area and your family goes back as far as generations is concerned when it comes to baseball, you were either a Brooklyn Dodger fan, a New York Giant fan, or a New York Yankee fan. You never rooted for any of the other teams at gunpoint. So my great-grandfather was a Giant fan, and once they left, and of course the Dodgers left, he wasn't going to root for the Yankees, so when the Mets came back into the National League in 1962, that's the team he rooted for. So of course that was the team I rooted for. And tons of heartache too, 73, although the Mets made it to a World Series. Now, I was four, and my recollection of baseball, which is my first love, not only is from him, but because I love baseball so much, it's that much, it resonates more because I just hear the voices of the old Met broadcasters, Lindsey Nelson, Bob Murphy, Ralph Kiner, and they replay over and over in my head where they are talking about Tom Seaver, where they're talking about the amazing Mets 73, whatever it is. And here we are. Watching this, my mother's going crazy, cursing out Pete Rose. You can see it's in the bio on the website if you even want to go back and read that. But there was some, there was tough sledding, man. Tough sledding with this team. The Tom Seaver trade. And we're not talking about the losses. I get that, people. But 84, when the team started to turn around after getting Keith Hernandez, and they lose to the Cubs, they lose to the Cardinals, and then 86. And unfortunately, 86 is the only thing that I could really, truly look at and this is a very interesting story too. I'm watching the World Series. Now let's go back to the game against the Astros because that was a day I was in high school. I was a senior in high school. And as I was going home to watch this game, it was in the afternoon. It was a Wednesday afternoon. And as I'm going home to watch this game, they're just getting mowed down by Bob Nepper, who was a left-hander on the Astros. And you knew Mike Scott was going to be present there standing and we all know Mike Scott had an enormous year that year he was a Cy Young he had a split finger from hell but a lot of them a lot of people thought that he was doctoring the baseball scuffing it whatever 
So now, 3 nothing in the ninth inning. The Mets rally. They score three runs in the bottom, uh, top of the ninth. They go to the 14th inning where they scored a run only to have Billy Hatcher hit a home run off the foul pole down in the Astrodome. The Mets then score three in the 16th, only for the Astros to get two back. And then even with the tying run on second, Kevin Bass strikes out, Orozco throws his glove in the air, and the Mets go in the World Series. And that I couldn't believe. Because for all the suffering that I had as a boy growing up in the Bronx, watching the Yankees win World Series in 77, 78, going to a World Series in 76, going to the World Series in 81, although they lost to the Dodgers, thank goodness. But, and mind you, at that time I was not even living in the Bronx. As crazy as that may sound. So it's not as if I could get any type of payback or at least have the Yankee fans pat me on the back and say, hey, you earned it, you've suffered all these years, ha ha, but about time, whatever it is. And then, of course, the Red Sox series where I'll just fast forward to game six. My cousin JD, here he goes again. Huge Red Sox fan. I'm sitting with him and my other cousin Josh, who I mentioned before. Two outs, bottom of the 10th. Now, mind you, Henderson hit that home run and I was just destroyed. I said, Mets are going to lose this game. I've waited my whole life for the Mets to win a World Series. In my whole life, I was 17. So... Check that out when I talk about my whole life. But that's how much I invested in watching the Mets in particular, more so than any of the other teams that I mentioned before this. So now you have a situation where it's two outs, bottom of the 10th, Backman flies out, Hernandez flies out, and I'm just sick to my stomach. I turned to my cousin JD. I said, listen, man, if I'm going to burst into tears, you could tease me until the day I die. I don't care, whatever, because he knew, he knows how huge of a Met fan I was, or I am, I should say. And that was it. So then the Mets had the rally. We all know what happened after that. And all I did, and I know you're 17, you don't know any better. So what did I do? When Mookie hits the ball down the first baseline, it goes through Buckner's legs. I open up the door to his apartment. I run down the, the corridor in his building and yell like a lunatic about the Mets win. And of course, I'm 17. I don't know my ass or my elbow, but that's just how crazy and ecstatic I was. Uh, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I mean, arguably the greatest World Series comeback ever. Considering the circumstances. They were literally one strike away from being eliminated and being sent home. And chances are not winning another as we know history as it is right now. They would have not won a World Series during that stretch. But they did win. And of course, Game 7 was that Monday night. It was rained out Game 6 at Sunday. And they were down 3 nothing. Bruce Hurst, who had a very good postseason. Uh, the Mets came back. They scored eight runs in the last three innings. They win 8-5. And that was great. And the one regret I do have about that is that I was a senior in high school. I was living in Fort Lee, New Jersey at the time. And I didn't cut school. I even told my mother, I'm going to cut school. She goes, you better not cut school. Why are you going to do that to go to some stupid parade? I said, Ma, this is the Mets. My whole life I've been waiting for this. All 17 years. And I didn't get to go to the parade. So big dummy that I was. But... That was pretty much my pie in the sky when it comes to the Mets because ever since then, there have been some moments going to a World Series in 2000, going to a World Series even in 2015, which to me was more unexpected in 2015 than it was in 2000 only because I didn't think they were going to make it to the World Series in July. Whether in 2000, they were a 90-some-odd win team and certainly were on their way to doing big things. Now, obviously, they fell short to the Yankees, as we all know. But in 2015, although they did win the division, but they won with 90 games, the rest of the division just fell apart. And 
They had to win a game five in LA. They swept the Cubs. And then we all know what happened with Kansas City. But since then, the Mets haven't really had that improbable runs from some of the other teams that I mentioned earlier. But the Mets, that's the only bright spot in my sports history that I could look at and say, oh, man, that was just an unbelievable run. Because all the others fell short. And even though it was fun while it lasted and you enjoy it because you're a sports fan and you only hope it gets to that pinnacle, but when it doesn't, yeah, you can still think back and say, even in 2015 when Yohannes Cespedes pretty much carried that team and it's good to reflect on that, that wow, that was unexpected. They overtook the Nats. The Nats fell apart. They won a division. Man, they beat the Dodgers in LA, but when DeGrom didn't have anything in the tank and he still threw 120 pitches in six innings and wow, they swept the Cubs who were on the uptick considering they won the World Series the following year and here they are, the Royals who made it to the World Series, but you know what? We got our... Starting four of Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard, Steven Matz. But that's where it ends. So, and even though that night at City Field, game three, Syndergaard, that first pitch to Alcides Escobar, that was excellent. And that was a thrill. Considering that Escobar was always swinging at the first pitch and Syndergaard sent a message there and it was the only game they won in that World Series. But to me, now that I think about it, that was the last great moment as far as the Mets concerned here. But this is why you become a sports fan because whether you're a diehard fan, whether you're hopefully a diehard or even a casual fan, you always have to stick by your teams because how I look at it, if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers could win a Super Bowl, if the Kansas City Chiefs after 50 years win a Super Bowl, one of your teams will eventually, we will never know when, but when that team does win, you could certainly look at it and say, oh, Was it worth all the pain, suffering, investment emotionally of your team if they do finally win that championship? At the end of the day, you would say, hell yeah. And that's what we only hope for as sports fans. To get to that mountaintop, even though you don't play for the team, even though you have no connection as far as being a former player or even working for the organization, but you know all those years that you've watched, followed, the disappointment, the dejection, the frustration, whatever, it's all worth it when you get there. But again, it's all what if. I'm sure for the fans of the teams that I root for, I'm sure it was a little bit of a journey and it was fun to go down memory lane there. And I get for others that aren't a fan of those teams, I appreciate you listening. I just hope that as I went through each sport, it kind of made you think about your team, where you were at that time, when your team won, and even if you're a Jet fan where you can't even express what it's like to win a Super Bowl, especially after Super Bowl three, if you weren't even born then or certainly didn't watch it then, but at least you could say, yeah, with the Jet run of 98 when they went to an AFC title game. And again, we understand it's not about getting to a title game. It's not about getting to the playoffs. It's about winning the whole thing. We get that. But sometimes when you have some of these runs, especially when it's unexpected, it does make you think back as to where you were. And that's the beauty of it. And that's what I tried to display here for you guys over the course of the last 45 minutes or so. And I appreciate you sticking with me and through these tough times and trying to come up with different topics and things of that nature. And a lot of the sports stuff that happened this week, of course, I'll touch back on Monday and a lot to look forward to here in the coming week. So you definitely want to check that out as I'll be back on Monday to bring you everything that's happening in the world of sports. But until then, as always, people, Please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, 
As I've said time and time again, all that's going to do is just increase the visibility of this podcast with all the other, not just sports, but just podcasts in general. And then hopefully that will generate interest with those who aren't familiar with this podcast that could possibly and potentially be guests on the program, whether it's the former athlete, current athlete, the sports writer, blogger, broadcaster, etc. So if you could go ahead and do that, that literally takes 60 to 90 seconds, people. Just go to your phone where you have your podcasts, especially on an iPhone. There's actually a podcast app. It's pink. Hit that. Type in the J-Reels podcast. Hit subscribe. And when you do hit subscribe, you'll automatically get the podcast once it comes to you. So if I say, yes, this podcast is going to be posted 7 p.m. tonight, bet your bottom dollar that at 7.01, it's going to go right to your phone so you don't have to worry about having to search it, look for it, etc. So if you could do that, people, I greatly appreciate it. And then also, if you need to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, or just to follow me and what it is that I do in the social media world, you could do so at J Reels and the J Reels Podcast, which is Strictly Sports on Instagram, the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook fan page, J Reels One, just a number on Twitter. And if you want to do the old-fashioned way, send me an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll certainly follow up with you people. So any questions, comments, criticism, praise again, please feel free to send it my way. And I'll be sure to follow up because as you all know, I love to talk about everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Be sure to look out for not one but two podcasts next week, including one with a Major League Baseball pitcher, which you certainly won't want to miss. Recorded that the other day. It was a gem. I'm in the process of post-production, so you definitely want to keep your eyes peeled for that. And until next time, everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong, and as always, get it on the flip, baby.